Welcome to the ESG Matters podcast. My name is Ahmad Gomis, and today we have Tim Weiss. He is a co-founder and CEO of Optera, enables companies to track, manage, and achieve goals in a platform designed and supported by sustainability experts. The Optera platform was born from 20 plus years of work with leading companies and NGOs. Welcome to the podcast. Yeah, Ma, thanks for having me. Great. So the first question I have, you know, I'm very curious, can you discuss your career path and what led you to create Optera? Yeah, I'll go to the, the way back machine and way back in college, I was trying to really understand what issues that I kind of cared about personally were best suited to my skills, I would say, and what came naturally to me. And there, you know, I took a lot of different courses and, and kind of a broad breadth of things that struck my interest and kind of struck a chord with me. But ultimately, what I found is that environmental issues and especially climate is a really compelling melding of the heart and mind for me personally. It is fundamentally a problem that can be really well addressed with a quantitative approach, with an understanding of the global economy, and also how natural environmental systems are impacted by human activity. And so ultimately, it, it really scratched my itch intellectually, but also my, my desire to, to do good in the world and leave the world in a better place. So that's really what really started my career. I, I studied environmental policy in college, but took a lot of economics and environmental science classes um, and like thermodynamics and energy classes. I then found an internship with an organization that was setting up microgrids uh, or really establishing networks for, for entrepreneurs to sell small scale solar energy technologies in, in rural areas, both in sub-Saharan Africa and on the Navajo Nation in the U.S. And that's really what started my career in this industry. So I actually lived in Namibia and Southern Africa for about a year and a half and was supporting and really helping manage and lead the, the, the work on the ground for that organization and scale their activities. And that's really what started my journey in the renewable energy and sustainability space, also with entrepreneurship kind of being a focus. And so I then uh, took a detour and, and studied, uh, or actually was, was a teacher at an international school um, for a couple of years, and then came back and got my MBA. Um, and when I got my MBA at CU, ultimately, my goal was to really target the sustainability industry and, and really to understand how... I could make an impact um, with large organizations. Around that time was when the Paris Agreement was getting ratified and really coming to be. I met my other co-founders, Jason and Ty, around that time in 2015. They had a boutique consulting firm, actually, that was supporting organizations, science-based targets, quantifying their carbon emissions. And we actually did some market research together to understand what challenges organizations faced in not only quantifying their emissions, but also in converting that data into action. And we found that fundamentally every large organization we spoke to was relying on consultants primarily, uh, and they had no understanding of how they're going to scale these initiatives. And so fast forward six months, I left uh, the organization I was at at the time, which was AES and their commercial renewables division, and joined my co-founders to start Optera and really pivot the consulting practice that we had into a scalable software. That's really interesting. And I think it's important for people to understand that so many people like yourself who are entrepreneurs are often trying to solve 
a problem that they see in the marketplace. And I think it's important for people to see that sort of that process. And when we think about sort of obstacles, when you look at large companies, especially with the work that you've done at Optera and thinking about the the data that it generates, what are some of the biggest obstacles you see companies have when it comes to getting a handle on their scope three emissions? Yeah, scope three emissions are, you know, I'm, I'm assuming there's a pretty educated audience, but you yeah. know, we, we have scope one emissions that stem from every smokestack and tailpipe that you that you operate. Scope two coming from the electricity grid and the energy services that you consume. Uh, scope three really being the emissions from your value chain. And the first biggest obstacle is that you don't control these emissions. They come from third parties. They come from your suppliers, from the use of your products in your customer base, from if you're an investor, from your portfolio companies. And so you really have a much less direct link to the ultimate sources of these emissions and a lot less control. So that's the first fundamental barrier. The second is that it's really hard to quantify scope three. And what has resulted from that is that a vast majority of organizations rely on very old and unactionable data to understand what their scope three emissions are, um, just in terms of order of magnitude. So this might be data that's industry averages or commodity intensities that were quantified almost a decade ago in many cases. And they are still used because they're really the only source that can be viable for organizations to understand. They have kind of full breadth of coverage. But if you think about, you know, an electronics company, if they're using data that's 10 years old to quantify the emissions that go into manufacturing a television or a computer, televisions and computers are fundamentally different now than they were 10 years ago. And that's true with many industries. If you think of automakers, many of them making EVs now, you can't rely on that old data. And also it's just, it's just fundamentally inaccurate, but also it's not actionable because it doesn't illuminate the ultimate sources, the true sources of your scope three emissions. It masks it with industry averages. And so really that, that antiquated way of quantifying scope three is holding a lot of organizations back. The last big obstacle is ultimately to act on scope three, you need to build capacity among your the entities that are comprising your scope three boundary. So your suppliers are ultimately the ones that need to mature and need to improve your portfolio companies, if you're an investor, your customers. And so the the need for solutions for the folks within that boundary is essential for you to make progress on your scope three. And we see that ultimately that capacity building is where action happens, where work happens, and it is a large, a large barrier. And so really the the you know the three big things we see not directly controlling your emissions, old and unactionable ways of quantifying these emissions, and then also you know the big bridge and capacity building. These these three barriers are are really limiting um, the effectiveness and, and the the adoption of kind of scope three management practices overall. So that's a really good point that leads into another question I have, uh, really focused on scope three, is that let's say a company through a variety of different objectives that they've created, they actually understand their scope three missions and they have a good handle on how they've created programs to help their strategic suppliers and their customers manage their own scope one and scope two for their own organization. What do you see as the potential competitive advantage of 
the process that a company has went through to get a handle on their scope three emissions and how can they leverage that information as a way to set themselves apart? Yeah, it's it's a great question. The ultimately when you look at what what do markets want right now? Like what are regulators, what are investors asking for? They want to know which companies are going to win and which companies are going to lose as we transition to the low carbon economy. What who is exposed to the greatest risk from the transition to the low carbon economy or physical risk from climate change? And you cannot answer that question without understanding what sources of emissions lie in your scope three. Fundamentally, you need to understand whether you can continue to make the products you sell in the way that they are currently made by the organizations they're currently made by, right? Which suppliers? You need to understand where they're made in the world because is that area prone to the teeth of climate change or fundamentally kind of water risk issues, sea level rise or drought or flood or fire? And You also need to know whether the products you sell ultimately are going to be usable by customers. If you sell predominantly cars that are relying on internal combustion engines and you don't have a plan to pivot that to low carbon alternatives, you really are asking yourself some really existential questions right now because your license to sell the current products that you sell is not going to last forever. And so ultimately, what we see with most large organizations is that the existential risks that are posed by climate change, whether they're transition risk or physical risk, they ultimately stem from scope three. And so if you're going to really address the concerns from regulators and from investors, and ultimately from from any business leader, like you just have to understand how much risk you're exposed to and how you're going to deal with it. And the only way is to really start with that foundational understanding of what is your scope three? Can you rely on the way that your, manu- your products are manufactured today for, for the foreseeable future? Can you sell the same products you sell in 10 years? And that question is one that begins to be illuminated as a company matures and starts to meaningfully manage their scope three emissions. That's what we see as a fundamental competitive advantage is ultimately any business that's run well and managed well, you're understanding the true roots of problems that you have to face, not symptoms. And many symptoms lie potentially within scope one and two, where, you know, you have, you know, you have to figure out how to electrify certain operations or or other things. But um, the true, the true root causes of the problem that's exposed by climate change often relies on and is often embedded in scope three emissions. Yeah, I think I think you hit the nail on the head when it really is a way for companies to gain a competitive advantage by managing what they consider to be sort of an intangible asset in many respects and the journey to better understand what is the cause of, of their scope three emissions and then how do you leverage that information in a way that you can better serve yourself in the low carbon economy and also be more attractive to institutional investors who are looking to put capital to work in companies that are meeting their own objectives, right? So I think for a lot of companies, both large and small, when they're thinking about their scope three, it's not just managing your scope three for the sake of just decreasing your carbon footprint, but that really is saying, how are you effectively managing your resources in a way that can bring the greatest value for your employees, for your customers, and even for pretty much everyone in your value chain. So I think that's something companies may need to start to sort of reframe how they think about the work that they're doing for Scope 3. 
pivoting a bit in the United States. We're a bit behind when it comes to regulations, sustainability regulations, environmental regulations compared to the EU. And I'm also curious to, to hear this because you have experience working in sub-Saharan Africa as well. What do you see as a potential impact of government regulations on scope three admissions, but whether it be in the reporting or the monitoring of it. So I'm just curious what's your take on that? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, we see the the regulations in the EU that came out earlier this year, uh, CSRD really kind of put scope three in a very prominent place, which is really great to see. And ultimately our position here is regulation will never touch every organization in the world because there is no single body that regulates every company in the world. Problem is that that kind of radiates from that is that the models that we have for corporate climate action rely on the fact that every company has to set and achieve a science-based target for us to maintain a 1.5 degree planet. And so the fundamental breakdown of these models comes in the fact that we have to compel every organization in the world to act on climate. And regulation is not going to do it because there isn't a single body that touches everyone. Scope three is that bridge. And so when you think about requiring every major company in the world to quantify their emissions on scope one, scope two, and scope three, you're now requiring that company to directly quantify the emissions across their entire supply chain. And for some organizations that we work with, that might be 100,000 companies. And if you're also thinking you know, downstream investors now, every investor needs to quantify the emissions that stem from all of the assets that they own. And that, when you think of the magnitude of that sort of initiative, you then start to see that this might actually touch every company in the world. If we require scope three management from every large company that's publicly traded or doing business kind of within the EU or within the United States and North America, we now have a path to essentially requiring every company in the world to quantify their emissions and mitigate their transition risk. That is the impact. The impact is that we might actually be able to get to a scale that's relevant to tackling the climate crisis. Without scope three, to be totally candid, I don't see a clear path because you will always create a regulatory blind spot at some corner of the world. But if every big business from every big automaker, tech company, retailer, everyone has to quantify scope three, they will have to manage the risks all the way down to the raw raw material level. And that's going to really ensure that we have complete coverage. I agree. I think that when we look at scope three, from a regulatory standpoint, we're starting to see a few, a little bit of movement in the United States in a way that I think companies are starting to think about who ordinarily just thought that this was maybe an extractive industry or oil and gas industry issue. And they're really having to think about it as even though they may view their carbon footprint as small, they still need to monitor, measure, and report. But then that also brings up a good question regarding strategic suppliers of these large companies that you've mentioned. And oftentimes those are what I would say fall within the middle market or lower middle market sectors of the economy. Oftentimes they've been overlooked because of their scale and their their footprint isn't large enough. But to your point, if large companies are starting to require, starting to be required by government agencies to report this information, 
then that onus of reporting also now falls on middle market and lower middle market companies. And I wonder how can those companies, given much more limited resources than a large company would have, how can they take advantage of this and how can they set themselves up to start to think about this for a competitive advantage in their own smaller sector of the economy? Yeah, no, it's, it's it's a great question. And ultimately, it's a similar dynamic where you cannot separate a large organization's risk from their supplier risk because these things are deeply intertwined, right? You can't say that Foxconn is a net zero comp or sorry, that, that Apple is, is essentially a net zero company without ensuring that Foxconn and their manufacturing practices are aligned with that. And so brand risk and supplier risk is the same. And so if you're a supplier and you're looking, you, you know, you're even in more of a commodity market, ultimately one of your major value props moving forward Uh, essentially can be that you have a solution to this transition risk that's posed by what you make. And so can you articulate to your customer that you're a good supplier and you're on track to mitigate your emissions and and get to net zero in a way that's advantageous to your customer, to the big brand that that you're transacting with? that value prop is going to become more and more essential with every year that ticks by. We see it, you know, CSRD is requiring ultimately every large organization to disclose the activities within their suppliers. And and if if they don't have any data or any insights on what their supplier is doing, they have to document that they tried. And so this is this regulation is really honing in on the brand supplier relationship. And if you're a supplier, you have the opportunity now to be a solution for your customers. And so your value prop can go well beyond whatever product you make and price point. And, and this is a big value add potential for, for a lot of middle market companies. Well, that's great. And Tim, I want to thank you so much for being a guest on the ESG Matters podcast. Uh, one last question. If someone wants to reach out to you and learn more about your company, Optera, and how would they, what's the best way that they can go about doing that? Yeah, well, our website is opteraclimate.com. That's the best place to find us. Ultimately, uh, we're also yeah available on LinkedIn and kind of other social media, but it's always great to discuss these issues and to, we're always happy to engage with clients that are, that are li- really looking to solve these really existential and systemic problems. Um, so appreciate the opportunity to uh, to speak with you. Thank you so much. And thank you all. If you like what you hear, please like, share, and subscribe to the ESG Matters podcast.